Good evening and welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre for No Pressure To Be Funny. Created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel and podcasting on the British Comedy Guide. But now it's time to welcome a man who was rushed back from holiday to be here. Last year he went to France and wasn't even rude to anyone. So all we're saying is, David Cameron, take note. It's Mr. James O'Brien! Thank you for coming and uh, welcome to No Pressure To Be Funny. The topical discussion show that is really starting to flex its muscles. We'd like to point out that since we started, three dictators have lost their grip on power and many more feel under threat. And as if that wasn't enough proof of our global influence, New Zealand didn't choke at the Rugby World Cup and for the first time in 80 years, Manchester United lost 6-1 at home. There's no joke there. We just like saying it. <laughs> Last week saw the final episode of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of This Storm Drain. In my, in my opinion, it brought reality television to a new low. Anything that can make you feel sympathy for Colonel Gaddafi has got to be suspicious. And the National Transitional Council in Libya is now trying to ban the practice of celebrating by shooting into the air on the grounds, the perfectly reasonable grounds, that bullets are subject to the laws of gravity. <laughs> Which is apparently why people are now being injured when they fall back down to earth. The average reaction on the street seems to be, it's health and safety gone mad. <laughs> Next thing you know, they'll be trying to stop us storing dead dictators in the freezer. <laughs> Gaddafi has now been buried in a secret location in the desert. This has upset Gaddafi's family, who don't like the idea of a victim of political violence being buried in an unmarked grave. <laughs> Human Rights Watch are insisting on an inquiry into the circumstances of Gaddafi's death, but I think we can save them some time by announcing the findings now. Colonel Gaddafi was shot in the head at close range after he was captured. It was initially reported that he had been caught in a crossfire which is also true, in the sense that the people who caught him were cross <laughs> and fired. Our first guest this evening was described by one critic as reminiscent of a young Stephen Fry, which probably means he'll get arrested for credit card fraud during the interval. Please welcome to the No Pressure Piano, Mr James Sherwood. I met you Life was much more simple I was just another one of those guys I would open doors for strangers I'd say thank you to waiters Or if I did something wrong Apologize But now you've shown me something new The whole world changed when I got you Those stupid old rules simply don't apply now that you've agreed to date me, I don't care if people hate me. My last reason to be good has waved goodbye. I used to give to charities whenever they'd request. 
But now I keep it all for you and me and sod the rest If I buy a poppy now I'll give 5p Cause you bring out the best in me I used to go to benefits where Sting was performing Now I couldn't give a monkeys about global warming Sometimes just to relax we cut down a tree Cause you bring out the best in me You used to care for people any colour, creed or race But now you've changed your ways, it's true you can ignore a beggar with such elegance and grace Maybe I bring out the best in you At the cinema I used to be as quiet as a mouse Now we each wear a sombrero the size of a small house Why should it bother me if no one else can see? Cause you bring out the best in me Apart from you I couldn't care what anybody thinks I've given up paying tax and I've stopped buying drinks And I'm thinking of becoming an MP Cause you bring out the best in me This isn't the bit I've rewritten by the way I give Rebecca Wade the use of my chateau down in France Surely everybody nowadays deserves a second chance Colonel Gaddafi was until recently kipping on my settee You bring out the best in me The rioting in London truly made me despair Some shops had burnt down before I had even got there Now who wants to buy a flat screen TV? You bring out the best in me Now I spend my evenings hacking phones and bribing the police I'm not sure how it happened, but I think I now own Greece And if you want it, it'll cost you 50p Cos you bring out the best, you bring out the best You bring out the best in me Make his way to the panel where he will be joined imminently by a comedian and radio presenter who was recent, a proper one, a comedian and radio presenter who, who was recently the talk of the internet, the blogosphere, the Twittersphere, after being subjected to a seven minute rant live on air on why everybody hated him. This was James from Swansea on his talk sports show. <laughs> I, I should say at this point that I feel a close affinity uh, and professional sympathy for a fellow broadcaster, but I'm going to say that that's what you get when you work for talk sport. <laughs> Please welcome Matt Ford. Our, uh, our next guest is a comedian and writer whom The Guardian described as disgustingly talented, which just goes to show that The Guardian is never happy. Fresh from a sellout run at the Edinburgh Festival with the sketch show Jigsaw, please welcome Nat Lertzema. And our final guest is a Perrier-nominated comedian, Radio 4 and, more importantly, No Pressure regular, who has also recently become a chaser on ITV's The Chase. Far too many jokes about this have already been made. So we'll just say that we're very, very pleased to see Mr Paul Thinner. 
this part of the show, the devil's advocate sees one of the panel fly in the face, if you will, of public opinion. And having successfully argued in the past that the Commonwealth Games in India were an organisational triumph, <laughs> Paul has kindly agreed once again to be this week's devil's advocate. Um, and, well, apparently, this week, the devil's advocate believes that protests never were. Right, um, this is obviously about political protests, because this has been the Annus Mirabilis for the political protests, I think it's fair to say. Across the Arab world, long-standing dictators have been deposed and Colonel Gaddafi is now so definitely dead that even Scottish physicians have made the correct diagnosis for a change. But, but by contrast, here in Britain, the protests against the widening gap between the disenfranchised and the unaccountable rich have led to several branches of JD Sports being looted and one cathedral being moderately inconvenienced. <laughs> now, about Occupy London, I speak with great sorrow when I say that I don't think Occupy London have a cat in hell's chance of ever having their opinions taken seriously. And I say that with sorrow because I used to be quite politically active, sort of. When I was a teenager, I went on several marches for the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Hmm. So many triumphs. <laughs> I, I, I do believe that Senegal and Papua New Guinea still don't have the bomb, so, you know, <laughs> dream on. Well it, it was fun, it was exhilarating, but it achieved sod all. Nor did any march I ever went on, whether it was calling for economic sanctions against apartheid South Africa or protesting about the introduction of student loans. Who knew in 20 years' time that student loans would be seen as the golden age of student funding? Um, if I'd known what I'd known then, I don't think I'd have bothered. And 20 years later, there seemed to be plenty of people prepared to protest on a variety of issues, but no great public support for the protesters. Yes, people are angry about greedy MPs, negligent bankers, verminous tabloid journalists, but somehow it's seen as slightly un-British to make too much of a fuss. And I guarantee you that while there are people angry about the above issues I just mentioned, there are more people angry that one of Gary Barlow's singers is an arrogant, misogynist, tuneless buffoon. I, I try not to get emotionally involved, but he really is a prick, isn't he? Now, <laughs> now the, main, the, 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 <laughs> the main reason, I think, for this apathy is that we all know in our heart of hearts that anything we protest about won't actually make any kind of difference. It's just too much effort for nothing. The hierarchy of power in this country is such that the rich will always support each other and the disenfranchised will always get the blame. I wish the Occupy UK people all the best, but with a press that are only too eager to stereotype them as benefit scroungers, layabouts and criminals, I just don't think there's a chance. I don't know what the alternative is, Facebook groups, <laughs> e-petitions, to test the water, I tried my own e-petition this week to see if it would work, and I e-petitioned to see if gay bars could be forced to have a limit on the number of Lady Gaga tracks they have on the jukebox. <laughs> and yesterday I got an email back saying simply, piss off. So, <laughs> um, but essentially what I'm saying is that sadly, I think we live in a country where political protests never really have enough support to succeed. Well, thank you very much, Paul Sinner. What a troublingly bleak analysis of, uh, of modern life you treat us to. Is he, is, is he right, Matt Ford? Surely there's some light at the end of the protest tunnel. Uh, there is. I think if you look at uh, the poll tax riots, that had uh, a certain amount of uh, success. Um, and it's important to judge the... I know Paul's deliberately been devil's advocate, so 
Well. My sense, he really. You could see the sort of joy being sucked from the room as he spoke. <laughs> what, what, what marches, and I don't agree with every protest we've had in this country by any means, but I defend people's right to protest. What protests and marches do at least is demonstrate to politicians and to elites, whether, it, whether it's the media or, or politics, a certain amount of opinion and a certain amount of willingness to do something about it. The fact is, this idea that modern political engagement is retweeting something or joining a Facebook group. Is ridiculous. Those people who actually bother to, to either take the time off work or have plenty of time on their hands because they're out of work to actually demonstrate and, and march with their opinion, to actually vote with their feet, solidifies a certain amount of opinion around themselves, starts a movement. So in themselves, obviously the war in Iraq still happened, the fox, in, uh, fox hunting ban still went ahead. You can point to them in terms of their specific aims and say, of course, the vast majority of marches and demonstrations in this country have failed. But what they did do in the end, the poll tax rights actually in the end helped to bring down Margaret Thatcher. You could argue that, even though I support the war in Iraq, the march against it helped bring down Tony Blair. And I think that the movements we have at the moment, whether it's Occupy the London Stock Exchange, whether it's the people that marched against tuition fees, will build a coalition that in the end, I hope, will rid us of this Tory government. Blimey. Mm. That's, uh, well, you're setting a lot on it, considering that on the front page or page three of the Daily Mail today, it turns out 90% of the tents are empty. Did you see this story? That's they're not fair, though. They're claiming that they're looking at them through infrared and they can't find body warmth. Yes. Have you ever been camping? It's fucking freezing. <laughs> 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 it's very cold. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, vague, the vagaries of shading as well. So oh. apparently green is empty. But a different type of green might have somebody in there, and then they used a bin as an example of something that was really cold. Well, that's cool. most, of, most of the protesters are green. A little strange. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. In both ways. Literally. But, but, I'd say I've been colder than a bin when camping. Yeah, I, think I could have lain there late at night and thought, yes, I'm colder than a bin. Also, <laughs> and apparently there was a, a clip of one of the protesters ceasing to exist as they walked behind a tent. <laughs> which did seem that to suggest... That was some balls! It's not, it's, that was that's no tent, that's my Is that true? That, yeah, that's, 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 yeah, quite, yeah, that's quite Christian in its imagery then, isn't it? That's a kind of an apparition, a figure disappearing, one minute he's with us, the next minute he's not. The, the and then focus out with bread and fish. <laughs> Nothing like enough, if you ask me. <laughs> well, it depends how many people were in the tent. Um, <laughs> Paul refers to this tabloid demonisation, which I think everybody probably recognises. And as, as you were speaking, Matt, it suddenly occurred to me that to say to people, huh, you're not really a proper protester because you're, you're, you haven't got a job. <laughs> that has a really beautiful symmetry to it. Like, what the bloody hell do I have to... Well, how bad do things have to get before I'm entitled to actually protest? I haven't got a job, I haven't got a house, I'm colder than a bloody bin, and I'm not, a, I'm not allowed to protest. Yeah. But, it, but it, I mean, it is very it effective. It seems that they, they want to have both forms of snobbery, both yes. inverted and regular, uh, at, at the same time. So, what are you doing protesting? You haven't got a job. Well, what are you doing protesting? You're quite comfortably off. Or you look poor. What the bloody hell are you doing here? I've got a list of ten questions. If at the end of it, it turns out you are neither me nor my mum, then you can fuck off home. <laughs> God bless the Daily Mail. And I think that failure is very, very multifactorial, and we don't live in the same era that we did in 1989. Mm. We have a million TV channels, we have a million internet websites, we have other things that we can get angry about. I mentioned the X Factor thing jokingly, but if you go to any workplace, there'll be more people talking about that. Mm. The fact that Gary Barlow is constantly defending a singer who can't hold a tune. There are more people talking about that than there are talking about Occupy UK, and that's the way it is. I, I agree with Paul in one respect. I mean, I haven't been on any of these marches myself, so it's not like I actually agree with any of the causes. Well, they didn't. 
memory serves, Matt, they didn't have a march for the war in Iraq, so you'd have struggled to, you'd have struggled to get mobilised. Well, they did in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> These marches themselves, obviously, don't change anything, but they are part to say that because people are becoming more disenfranchised, that we should stop trying to demonstrate our opinion is clearly counterproductive. The less people march, the more... Uh, disassociated from politics and disaffected people are going to become. I don't go on these marches myself, but I, de- I respect them and I defend them as a, as a vital part. Because I think actually at some point, and I don't think we're there yet, at some point there, is, there will be a crossroads where people say, you know what, enough is enough now. I don't know, that might not even be in my lifetime, but with the Occupy London Stock Exchange, and I, I'm not going to go down there and camp myself, but there, there is something particular about that protest, which is, despite what some of the nutters out there camping would like to make it out to be, it's not actually in essence anti-capitalist what all it is saying is although inequality exists in the world and i spoke to plenty of the protesters down there when i went down there on saturday myself just to, out of curiosity if nothing else there is inequality in the world you defend inequality to some extent it's the extent of it that is the problem that the rich have become so rich and so greedy people still bank with banks because you don't have any other choice it's not saying that we we want halifax and hsbc and everyone else to close down it is the extent of that greed and how ridiculous they were in their pursuit of it, how violent and, and aggressive they were in the way that they behaved, which is the problem. And actually, all London Occupy London Stock Exchange and Occupy Wall Street need to get, and I said this to them and it was met with house of derision, is a few decent Tories, to be quite honest, a few sensible Tories who are old small-c Conservative uh, Tories who are, frankly, sensible capitalists, and that movement will have, will have real force and will have a real voice. Because there are plenty of capitalists in this country who accept that it went too far. But keeping this about, you know, you always see the same old banners at these protests, Palestine, at troops out, all this sort of thing. Mm. Have one single, if the Chartist movement, anyone who's studied history, if the Chartist movement tells you one thing, and it's always been a failure with the left, is to have multiple, multiple asks and, and regards. One single campaign, regulate the banks properly, and that campaign would grow around this country, I truly believe it. Yeah, I'd I think I'll that. Yes. Perhaps if they could get two people with the opposite viewpoint to debate in between acts on Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> Nick Revel has prepared a short piece about Hillary Clinton's latest trip to Central Asia and the difficulties of realpolitik, um, which uh, are thrown up by this visit. Nick Revel. I, I was talking to my cat uh, this morning. Um, it, well, he's not my cat. He's a street cat that's moved in, but that's not really the point. The point is it was, it was raining, and we go through this every time when it's raining. If we've done it once, a thousand times. He goes to one door, scratches, wants to go out. I open the door, look, it's raining. You, you don't want to go out. And don't go to the front door and start scratching those, because it will be raining outside <laughs> the front door as well. Just, you know, let me get on with my work. And, and every time, every time it's just this... Blank stare, like he hasn't understood a word I've said. It's almost insouciant, the look he gives me. And I just ignored him today. I just, right, that's it, I'm going back to work. Which today was, was trying to get my head around um, Hillary Clinton's uh, visit last week to, to Central Asia. Um, she, she, she made various trips. Last Thursday she was in Islamabad and, and she, she, she made a speech uh, telling the Pakistanis to invade North Waziristan to, to deal with the Haqqani network. Uh, now, the, 
the Haqqanis are allies of the Taliban, but, but not, uh, not com they're a separate unit. Uh, and as you know, the US and, the pa and Pakistan are both fighting the Taliban, and therefore also the Haqqani. And at the same time, Pakistan are fearful that when NATO ISAF pull out of Afghanistan, uh, other countries in the region, particularly India, will start getting more influence in Afghanistan. And so while the Pakistanis are enemies of the Taliban and the Haqqani, they're also friends with them. Um, <laughs> I know this sounds a little paradoxical, I'll just elucidate a bit more clearly. The Pakistan government have no links with the Haqqani. Uh, we know this because they've said so. <laughs> While the Pakistan military uh, do have links, uh, and meanwhile everybody agrees there is no evidence at all that the ISI, the Pakistani Secret Service, helped the Haqqanis attack the US Embassy in Kabul in September, apart from six mobile phones that were recovered afterwards which had chips which could be directly traced back to ISI serving officers. But that's not evidence because everybody agrees that it's not. Um, two months ago, uh, the ISI set up a meeting between the US and the Haqqanis, uh, which doesn't mean they have links, uh, because they say so. Um, this meeting took place in the summer, either just before or just after the US had a secret meeting with the Taliban in Germany. We don't know exactly when this was, because nobody admits it took place, apart from the people who says it did, uh, but they won't say who they are. Now, this meeting upset both Kabul and Islamabad, because they both hate the Taliban, as I said, and don't hate them. Them, and they felt that the USA were going behind their backs. And clearly, if everybody in negotiations starts going behind each other's backs, you're not going to get anywhere. So to get things back on, on a more honest footing, the next time the Taliban met President Karzai's chief negotiator, they blew him up just so that everybody knew where they stood. So anyway, going back, the Pakistanis at this point said to Hillary, look, uh, look obviously we want to fight the Haqqani uh, every bit as much as you do, except less so. Uh, but there are problems. You see, we can't possibly invade North Waziristan. For a start, it's already part of Pakistan. So, strictly speaking, it's impossible from a semantic point of view. <laughs> and also, we've got to live with them after you've gone. So, you know, so Hillary, she lays down the law. She says, now listen, if you don't invade North Waziristan, then we'll invade it. Next. President Karzai goes on Pakistan TV saying that if there's a war between Pakistan and the United States, Afghanistan would support Pakistan which made everybody in ISAF feel really good. Uh, I guess Karzai's argument was, what have the Americans ever done for me? So Hillary and her advisors weigh all this up uh, in depth, and finally Hillary says, OK, let's cut the crap. No more pussyfooting. Somebody has got to take a consistent line uh, in this situation and stick to it. When I said invade North Waziristan, I meant invade in the sense of not invade. <laughs> Karzai then says that when he said that Afghanistan would side with Pakistan against the United States in a war, he'd been misinterpreted uh, in the sense that he didn't realise that Americans watch Pakistan TV uh, and he still hasn't paid off his mortgage on the luxury apartment in Dubai which is next door to Rio Ferdinand's, I'm not making that up <laughs> Karzai is also busy at the same time cutting trade and security deals with Pakistan's arch rival in the area India, but he's pretty confident that Pakistanis don't read the Indian newspapers, so it won't get out. Um, so, to sum up, uh, I now understand how my cat feels when it's raining. The other big story this week was, of course, the, uh, the, the, the referendum. I've been on holiday, so this referendum <laughs> didn't get voted for, but it was 
an embarrassing experience for the Prime Minister because a significant number of his backbenchers voted for the referendum. It is extraordinary that people express their opinions on both sides in terms of Europe rather mm. than the European Union. Yes. So having an opinion on Europe is almost as ridiculous as having a war on terror. That you know, it doesn't doesn't matter what you do, that continent's still going to be there. Uh, and surely the discussion is, what do we do about it? Uh, whereas the, the idea of are you in favour or against the landmass <laughs> that we can get to reasonably quickly well, through you, a tunnel? You, you, this is proving my point. I mean, I grew up in Essex. We felt the same way about Kent. <laughs> <laughs> you prove my point in a way because you can. I mean, it is funny. You can't object to Europe. It's like objecting mm. to air. And yet, I think these people. Well, in Scotland, but in a way, yes, but they do. That's what you've got, what you've got at the heart of the Tory Party. This is the this is why Europe has never been resolved for the Tories. That the Conservative Party is a coalition between small C Conservatives and capitalists. The capitalists amongst them realise that the European Union as a trade bloc is beneficial, which is why you get the sensible Tories like Michael Heseltine and Ken Clark defending the European Union. The small C Conservatives, those that are the Little Englanders, the Rees Moggs, the Goldsmiths. And until uh, this week, David Cameron and William Hague have perpetuated this idea of, of sort of Little England and the idea that Europe is an interfering force. Now, bureaucracy is hard enough to defend at a local level in terms of local government and let alone parliament. Trying to justify what is seen as a foreign bureaucracy to British voters is almost absolutely impossible. And even those of us that are pro-European, pro-EU, like myself, actually have to concede that the European Parliament itself is not democratic because mm. you get turnouts of 30% and less. That does not have a mandate. The European Commission, uh, I feel, is unaccountable. The institutions of Europe themselves have let Europe down. And the biggest failure in terms of a European debate has been the British left. Because as long as I've been alive, the right wing in Britain, the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, uh, the Sun and the Tory party have allowed, been allowed to peddle lies about what Europe really means and particularly what it means to British workers. Now, John Major opted out of the social chapter when he signed the Maastricht Treaty, and that was a commitment to the minimum wage. Thankfully, under a Labour government, we got signed up to it. The reason why the Tory party are so anti-Europe, so many of them, is because it has defended workers' rights in this country when Tory parties, and I have to say it sometimes, Labour parties, have not had the political will to do it. It is frankly, pulling out of Europe a charter for the rich and for the employers against working people. But then why do the working people... I mean, you're, you're now casting them in a fairly unflattering role because you're saying they're too stupid to realise what's going on around I'm them. I'm not saying they're too stupid. You can't blame people when they haven't had a proper... When did the Labour Party really put pro-European arguments to the people? When Tony Blair, the most popular at the time, mm. a Prime Minister we'd ever had, Good a strong Labour leader, who apparently stated aim was to take Britain into the European single currency, never really put a proper pro-European argument. Ladies and gentlemen... Signor Silvio Berlusconi. They say my days are numbered Cause the Euro's out of juice Cause Nicola and Angela Want Silvio to vamoose To get me off the stage More than a grin and smirkle Be needed Monsieur Sarkozy and Frau Merkel The money's run out And someone must pay So to solve the problem They all want to say Arrivederci Silvio, but they should know I've beaten tougher foes than them with just my left hand. They'll never frighten Silvio, cause on my side I've got the Mafia, the court and AC Milan, and Tessa Jowell's husband, he's a well-connected man. 
They want me to bring in new laws of austerity. I've not heard such rubbish since I met Adam Werity. I own all the media, me and no other, except for one newspaper owned by my brother. I'll do what I like, no one tells me I can't, cause I just don't care how much they all chant. Arrivederci Silvio, but I once complimented President Obama on his suntan. Don't you forget that Silvio survived attack which used a statuette of the cathedral in Milan. I know Tessa Jowell's husband. He's a very clever man. Tax fraud, false accounting, corruption and bribery Saying that homelessness is a camping holiday I once used a prostitute who was 15 I've even insulted Finnish cuisine It's like Prince Philip and John Leslie were rolled into one They're not just stood for election but fucking one You name it, I've done it and walked away free So don't bank on anyone singing to me Arrivederci Silvio But if I go I will be stronger yet than you can ever understand There will be jobs for Silvio Libya needs a present just like me I think and so does Ireland I know Tessa Jowell's husband He's a very naughty man Oh, thank you very much. We're out of time. Uh, would you please, ladies and gentlemen, join me in thanking your panel this evening, Paul Sinner, James Sherwood, Matt Fort, and Nathan Seema. This, uh, this is, of course, the, the end of this week's show. We, we have to go now as we have a rather busy week ahead, having discovered our newfound power to influence world events. Our schedule for the next seven days includes toppling Robert Mugabe, bringing peace to the rest of the Middle East, solving the Euro crisis, and quite possibly having a tilt at famine and disease as well. Uh, although we don't want to overstretch ourselves, uh, as we all know, with great power comes great responsibility. And we've got Mark Thomas on the show next week, so we want to make sure we've still got something horrible left to talk about. This has been no pressure to be funny. I'm James O'Brien. Thank you and good night.